Aman Abrahimzadeh was South Australia's Young Australian of the Year in 2016 and is a recipient of the Order of Australia Medal. He's been recognised for his great contribution to domestic violence prevention, a passion of his that was born out of his family's horrific story. Twelve months after we fled the family home, my um, my dad tracked my mum down at the convention centre, and this was uh, on, on the 21st of March 2010, and um, he, uh, he established a death in front of 300 witnesses. It followed decades of abuse of Arman, his sisters and his mother Zara. Arman's father was jailed for 26 years, leaving him to look after his little sister and try to piece his life together after extreme trauma. We became parents overnight. You know, we were legal guardians of, uh, of my younger sister. She was 12 years old at the, at the time that uh, my mum passed away and my dad went to jail. He and his sisters established the Zara Foundation in honour of his mother to empower women escaping domestic violence. In Australia, one woman is killed every week by her current or ex-partner and one in three Australian women have experienced some form of abuse from their significant other. Aman is the man to tell us what we can do to change that. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. Tell me about your mum. Uh... My mum was a was a typical mum. Uh, she would fuss over you. She would uh, she would nag you. She would uh, she would stress you. And uh, um, I guess she she was she was a typical mum. She was someone who 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 cared for you. She was someone who was who was compassionate. And I guess I, I really looked up to her as a as a role model. As a as a young boy, um, as we do young men, we look up to our dads or you know our older brothers or um, uncles, grandfathers, whatever it might be. But for me, I looked up to my dad. Uh, as a role model for a, for, for a long time, uh, and when I started to sort of realise that um, he wasn't really a role model for me to to uh, to, to follow, I started looking at uh, at my mum. And so, uh, in my late teenage years and my in my early twenties, I learned a lot from uh, from my mum. What was it like for you growing up at home? Growing up at home, um, it was uh, it was difficult, but at the same time, it was it was a normal thing for us to. To witness abuse, to witness violence, to uh, to be abused, uh, and uh, and and for for my father, who was the head of the household, for him to run the house, if uh, if he didn't agree with something, it uh, it wouldn't go ahead. It was either uh, his way, his way, or the highway. I've got an older sister who's about eighteen months older than me, and I've got a younger sister who's about ten years younger than me. And so, for all of us three, we were. Uh, we were always told to talk in a certain way, respect my dad. Um, but I, now that I look at it, it wasn't really about respect. It was about fear for, for him. So for me and my sisters, it was a little bit hard, you know, to sort of go to school. You look at your friends and see how everyone else uh, does things in their family home. And then for us to come back to our family home and, and see the way things, uh, things were run in our, in our family home. So, uh, so for us, it was, uh, it was a bit difficult, but... Um, I guess you know we had we had each other and we supported one another and uh, we managed to uh, to get out of that uh, that abusive uh, family home. We managed to leave it all behind and uh, go somewhere where we were all safe. What form did that abuse take? Uh, the abuse came in all uh, forms and uh, and and shapes. It was uh, uh, it was emotional abuse, psychological. There was financial abuse. Um, it was physical abuse. Lots of physical abuse. My parents would argue maybe two, three, four times a week. It was a normal thing for my parents to, to argue, and uh, and so we uh, in my in my teenage years, uh, I sort of had a um, 
uh, I, I developed a bit of a routine where if my parents argued, I would step in the middle of them to try and act as a physical barrier to try and stop my dad from uh, uh, from assaulting my mum. Sometimes I, you know, I copped some, I, you know, a few punches, slaps, and kicks, but uh, but that, that that was a normal thing in our family home. As far as I remember, yeah, yeah, my earliest childhood memories are uh, are of him, you know, losing his shit, and and uh, uh, in the process, uh, my sisters and I and and my mum would cop it. So that, was that was a normal thing for us, yeah. Two, three, four times a week, uh, an argument would would break out, and it was a normal thing. Were you always afraid, or did you get to the point where you're like, well, that's just how it's meant to be? I would say. Uh, I would say up to my teenage years, uh, it was a, it was a, uh, you know, it became a routine for us. Uh, but maybe when I was fifteen or sixteen, uh, when I started to act as a physical barrier, I, f- I felt the need to act as a barrier because when you when you look at two people who who you love and respect, two people that you look up to, uh, and you see one of them really beat the other one senseless, you you, you know you would just question it and you say, well. You know why? Why aren't I doing something about it? Why? And, and so you know your 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 instinct, your gut instinct, just tells you to to get in there and try and fix it. And so that that's what I did. You know, you do it once, you do it again, you do it again, and so it essentially became routine. Did your father have any redeeming features? How so? Was there anything good about about him? Uh yeah, yeah. My 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 dad was a smart man. He was a lawyer by trade. He was. Uh, uh, well educated, very uh, well respected in the community. Um, I remember people in our, uh, you know, in the Middle Eastern community would would uh, uh, would come to me and tap me on the shoulder and say, "Your dad's a gentleman. Your your dad's a uh, your dad's a genius. You know, he's a, he's he's a good man." What would you say to that? Well, I would I would you know nod and say, "Yes, yes, he is." So you had the community fooled. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he had the community fold, and and we uh, we didn't speak we didn't speak out about it until until the day we fled our family home. So up to that day, my dad was the pillar of the community. He established a language school that still runs today, even though he's in jail. The, the language school still runs today. He's done so much good work in the community, and and even us, we used to have family picnics. We used to have uh, family gatherings. Uh, uh, religious and cultural gatherings. We used to, you know, show up to these gatherings as a, you know, as a united family. But uh, things got to a to a stage where my dad threatened to kill us in our own family home. He uh, after a, after a big argument when he um, when he couldn't arm himself with with anything, whether whether if it's a knife, whether if it's a you know a jug or, or or anything else. When when he couldn't arm himself with anything, he turned around and said, uh, "You can't watch me twenty four seven. Uh, when you least expect it, I'm going to lock you all in this house and I'm going to burn the house down. So after that, that incident, we decided to pack up our bags and, and leave. There were four of us. We had four bags. We chucked it all in the car and uh, we fled the family home. And what had happened to your mother by that stage? How had she been broken down? Uh, she was, um, well, she was essentially, she, she, she was scared for her life. She was scared for her children and she just didn't know what was going to come her way and, and I guess our way if we were to stay in, in the family home. She didn't want to come home one day to find all of us kids locked in the house with the house burnt down. I, I didn't want to do the same thing. I don't want to go to, uh, you know, I was 21 years old at the time. I didn't want to go to uni one day and then come home at night to find the house half burnt down with my family inside. So uh, none of us wanted to take that risk. And that's why we decided to, um, you know, while we still have one another, while we're still 
uh, safe. Let's pack up our bags and, and leave. That was the only option. And his figure in your life, what did that do to you psychologically? You know, walking on eggshells all the time, you must have had it in your mind all the time. Oh, I, I, I did. And I guess, you know, you, uh, I guess it, it becomes, um, you know, things become second nature. So uh, uh, you're always listening for, for, for something. You're always listening for, you know, either dad's voice to be escalated or, or mum's voice to, to go a little bit louder. Or, you know, if there was any yelling and screaming, you would automatically, you know, get up and go and check it out. Sometimes, false alarm, you know, would, you know, they might be mucking around or, you know, uh, uh, you know, someone might be, I don't know, they might have dropped a, a plate and it might have been broken or, you know, it, it might have been something that was, uh, you know, it just wasn't what you were thinking. But because you're, uh, you know, you set yourself up so that, uh, you know, automatically as soon as there's a scream or as soon as there's a loud noise or anything like that, you, you get up and run to it just to make sure that everything's okay. You know, you, you, you put yourself in that, in that habit and you, you develop those gut instincts. So getting away from an abuser, typically a very hard thing to do that lots of women and children struggle with. Yep. How did you actually manage to, to pull away from him? Uh, I guess like a Band-Aid. So it was, uh, uh, you know, once we fled the family home, we never returned. Given the communication that took place between my sisters, my mum and I, and my dad, we knew that uh, there was no point returning because uh, he, 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 he continued to threaten us when we fled the family home, he said that, uh, uh, you know, you, you, it's, it's too late for you. Now that, you've, now that you've all left, there will be consequences for your actions. Because he was embarrassed by that, because I suppose the community would have been aware then. Yep. Yeah. So the community was aware of it. Uh, it, and, it and it wasn't just about the, the divorce because, you know, couples split all the time. People get divorces. It's, you know, that, that's, not the, that's not the issue. Uh, but the issue was the the abuse and the violence, and I guess you know how can you how can you have a a, a pillar of the community who's uh, who's a gentleman who's such a good man, but behind closed doors he's uh, he's an abusive father. And do you think making such a contribution to the community so publicly and being seen in that way that enables him to continue abuse more so perhaps behind closed doors because you have such, you have that great image and no one's going to look for the signs or or believe that you would behave that way if you're this good, you know, publicly. Well, I guess you, you can. You can you can you can wear that mask and you can wear it really well. And I and I think that's that's what he did. Is that uh, uh, you know he uh, he was uh, heavily involved in the community. He was uh, um, you know he was a he was a smart man. He was charming. He was funny. Uh, um, he was great at what he did. And so uh, you know when you are that much of a gentleman, no one no one questions you. And so uh, you know he, he got away with it. And so. Um, uh, you know, he. I, I don't think he ever saw the day that uh, he would have to face, uh, you know, these these consequences. And I guess you know, he said that every action has a, uh, you know, has a reaction and has a consequence. So, uh, uh, you know, the the actions that uh, that that he showed and and uh, you know what we saw uh, for for over two decades, well, there were the consequences. You know, things were slowly coming to surface, and and everyone started to uh, to find out the truth. Where did his anger come from? Uh I. I uh, pointed down to two things, and I guess you know this is purely my observation and 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 what I've seen. My dad grew up in a uh, in a similar environment that I grew up in. He grew up in, a, in an abusive environment himself. Uh, my my grandfather was uh, was an abusive man, and uh, my grandma uh, my grandma and I guess you know my dad's siblings they all copped it. So that's that's I guess you know one one reason. But the other reason is my dad had a, a very strong belief in 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 terms of gender roles and where women sat in in the hierarchy so so to speak 
And if I was to, uh, uh, you know, tell you about uh, our family home, my dad was at the very top of the chart, uh, and everyone else sat underneath him. So it was like a, it was like an org chart. My dad was the CEO, and everyone else uh, had to report to him. And so even, even with uh, with myself, I probably had more more authority than my older sister and and my mum. And so uh, that was that was his belief. That's the way he saw things. And um, and the reason I say that is because when I was 13 years old, the first and only time that I had a father and son chat with with my dad was about this. Was about uh, you know gender roles and and what's okay for for men to do and what's okay for women to do. And uh, and I, I clearly remember in that conversation. He said. Um, uh, my dad said to me, he said, son, in, in our family home, our, uh, uh, you know, the women in our family home are, uh, are our integrity. If they misbehave, if they do something that brings shame to the family, uh, then it's up to us to, dis- to discipline them. And, uh, you know, when you hear that as a 13-year-old kid, um, you know, you start to absorb it. And, and, and like I said, I looked up to my dad and, and he was, you know, he was the smartest man that I knew. Every problem that I had, I would go to him. I relied on him for guidance. And, uh, you know, when he came out with that sort of advice, well, what do you do? It's your, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a, you know, as a young kid, it's a superhero that you look up to. And yeah, so you I think that's how things should be then. That's right. That's right. So you don't did question Did he tell it. you to look after your sisters and your mother? He did, but to, uh, in, in a way that um, uh, controlling them was looking after like them. Like keep them in line. Yes. Right. Yes. Did you think he was capable of carrying out those death threats? At the time, no. No, I thought, oh, he's, you know, he's my dad. He's, you know, he's probably mad. He, you know, he, he's, he's making death threats. Uh, and I guess, you know, now that I think about it, um, you know, the closer we got to the time that we left the family home, those death threats would become, um, you know, they would become more regular and they would become more severe. You know, to be so descriptive, to tell someone that you're going to lock them in a in their family home and burn the house down, you know, he didn't just turn around and say, "I'm going to kill you" and leave it at that. But he was very descriptive, and so um, you know, when things got to that point, I had heard him say that he's going to kill us before. But um, you know, when when as I said, when the threats, uh, you know, got so descriptive that he was describing to us what he was going to do, that's when we actually sat down as a family. That's my sisters and, and, and my mum, when we sat down as a family and thought, well, what are our options? Because essentially what we had to do was, you know, it was a couple of days after that threat that we decided to leave the family home. But before that, you know, we sort of had this plan that there needs to be two people together at all times. If, uh, you know, my mum was not to be left alone at home, I was not to be left alone at home, and neither were my sisters. So there needs to be a minimum of two people at all times to make sure that uh, we're all okay. Mm, constantly looking over your yep. shoulder at that time. And did you involve police and do things like restraining orders and that? So once we fled the family home, yes. Once we drew the line and said that you know enough is enough, uh, that's when we went to the uh, the police station and uh, we reported everything. Reported everything that we had seen, you know, over over two decades. Anything and everything from you know, the emotional and the financial abuse right through to the uh, the threat that we'd received and what caused us to flee our family home. And we told the police. We said, "Well, we've, we've packed our bags. We're we're not going back." What could they do for you? Well, we applied for a restraining order. The restraining order was was served uh, a few weeks um, after we'd applied for it. You you rely on uh, uh, you know lawyers and and legal services to sort of guide you uh, you know through family court uh, through getting the restraining order. The two different processes, two different court systems, 
And uh, and I guess you know that, that's what we started. We we started off the um, um, the legal battle uh, per se, and uh, and and unfortunately, my mum didn't last to uh, to to finish off any of those legal battles because uh, twelve months after we fled the family home, my um, my dad tracked my mum down at the convention centre, and this was uh, on on the twenty first of March, twenty ten, and um, he uh, he stabbed her to death in front of three hundred witnesses, and so. Um, uh, you know, up to that point, I thought life was hard and, and, you know, things were difficult and we were constantly watching over our shoulders and, you know, we had faced poverty, we had faced homelessness, we had been isolated, uh, there was no support around us. And I thought, you know, things are hard. And then uh, when my mum passed away and when my older sister and I had to sort of pick up the pieces, uh, then you sort of think, gee, I thought life was hard before this. Um, uh, yeah, we, we don't know where to start. Your your entire world just gets turned upside down. How did you hear that she'd been killed? I uh, so it was late at night. It was uh, probably about uh, eleven o'clock at night, and um, I and I remember I I just gone to sleep, and and my phone rang, my mobile phone rang, and I picked up the phone. It was my sister's friend who was uh, who was on the uh, on the phone, and she said, uh, "Come quick, come down to the convention center because uh, your dad just stabbed your mum." And so um, there and then, I thought, this is a dream. I've, I've, I know I've gone to sleep. I remember, you know, I've, I've gone to sleep. It's a nightmare. You must have had nightmares similar to that before. You do, but it's, you know, the, the nightmares are, are vague and the nightmares are, uh, you know, the nightmares didn't, didn't have, uh, you know, my dad with a, with, a, with a knife. The nightmares didn't have bad news like that. The nightmares were... Uh, more, uh, you know, shadowy or dark figures that would, you know, that would haunt you or, or chase you. That that nightmare that I thought I was having was very detailed, and it was, um, it was just, uh, it was too real. So, uh, I think, um, you know, it, it it was a bit of a blur from there. Uh, the only thing I remember is um, I I got to the convention center. I drove down there with my younger sister in the car, and. Um, uh, you know, I was I was in my tracksuit, so I, I I ran inside. The convention center had been locked down, and I had to talk to the security and, and tell him who I was and why I was there. So uh, so uh, he let me in, and and when I when I went in, I I remember I was trying to go into this room where people were, you know, tens and hundreds of people were trying to pour out of this room. So you imagine you're trying to squeeze yourself through people to try and get to this room, and um, you know, once uh, once I sort of got into the room, I um, what feeling did you have inside of you when you were going towards that? You don't think I I I don't know what sort of a feeling I had. I I I wasn't thinking. I just wanted to get inside that room. I I don't know what I was searching for. I don't know what I was expecting. You don't you don't know what to expect. You don't know what what you're going to come across. Uh, all I wanted to do was um, was to go and see what was happening. I guess you know because I wasn't there when the incident took place, so uh, uh, you and, know, I, and maybe see that it wasn't real. You maybe, maybe wanted, yeah, yeah, maybe a part of me wanted to confirm. You know, if, uh, is is it my mum? Is it is it real? How bad is it? I don't, I don't know anything. Those were the only words that were given to me via the phone. So I just wanted to see see it for myself. And when I saw my mum, uh, she was she was literally lying down in a pool of her own blood. And and so that was that that was that was the side that I saw, and so um, you know you, uh, I don't know, I, I froze, I froze on the spot, and um, 
and and I remember I, I I was trying to look for my uh uh look for my older sister. I wondered where, where she was and she wasn't uh she was she was on on the side of a room and and so uh you know I immediately went to her and and uh um then then the police came to came to get us and they got us out of that room and uh uh and then I remember I I had this this um you know this feeling came over me that I needed to go and see my dad. So um so then I started questioning the police. I said, where's my dad? I need to go and see him. And they said, well, no, you can't speak to your dad. And I, and I remember I got very um, agitated with the, with the cops on the night. And I remember I was, uh, I was holding on to the guy's jacket and I said, I need to see my dad. And so uh, he then held on to me. And not that he pressed me against the wall, but he kind of you know, held me firmly. And he said, listen, you can't see your dad. And he said, you need to cooperate with us. Otherwise, we'll need to take you away. What did you think you needed to say to him or hear from him? If get closure. Came, if you got to him in that moment, what, what would? Why have... did you do it? What the hell is the matter with you? I was angry. Did you want to attack him? I'm sure if I saw him, I probably would have. Yeah. And you know what? That's probably the reason why I haven't gone to see him or why I haven't visited him. It's because, it's because you know I'm still angry. I'm still angry about what's happened, and um, and you know I often say this when I when I talk about you know. I, I, I share my story from from time to time, and and one of the questions that I do get is that, you know, uh, what 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 would you do or what would you have done, and you know why didn't you take revenge? And and I say that, uh, you know, for me, revenge is a is a normal feeling. It's not you know it's it's not twisted to to want revenge on someone. Now you imagine if I come to you and if I punch you on the shoulder, <laughs> what would be your first reaction? <laughs> sure, you're trying to block it, but you know what would be, uh, you know, would you not want to, you know, punch me back or push me back or you know, say, or swear at me? You know, that would be, uh, you know, I, I would say that would be a normal reaction. Mm. Uh, you know, if, if someone if someone hurts you, you would want to hurt them back yeah. in in some way, and you want to know why. That's right, you want to know why. And so, uh, you know, that was that was probably the, you know, the thing that I felt is that you know I wanted revenge, I wanted to hurt him. And and I did I don't think it was a it was a you know a, a sick and twisted feeling, no. But it's just it's a, how you, a, any anyone anyone would have to feel that way. So natural to feel that. It, it would be natural, but it's it's how you go about taking revenge that uh, you know that, that defines you. Mm. That and defines what does it, it serve as well? Sadly, That's, like tremendously sadly. But what do you get from it? So what was I going to do? You know, bring myself down to his level mm. and you know go and hurt him or go and hurt his family. No, that wasn't that wasn't uh, uh, that wasn't what I ended up doing, and that wasn't what I was going to do long term. And so, but there and then on the night, I wanted to see him. I wanted to get an answer. I wanted to to uh, to see why he did it. And and sure, maybe in the process, if I had seen him, maybe I would have attacked him. So you've never asked. You never got an answer. I never got an answer. I uh, he wrote you a letter. He wrote me multiple letters. Mm. Yes. I never, uh, I never asked, and he never responded to, I guess, you know, to a question. But uh, he went on to justify his actions, and in those letters, uh, you know, quite lengthy, we're talking, you know, twelve, fifteen pages uh, of uh, reasons and justification. Uh, he, you know, talked about how uh, he he felt ashamed and how he he did what what he had to do in order to survive. That was that was his reasoning. Yeah. And when you read that. It just makes you angry. I think it, 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 you know, it, it, it made me, it made me furious because I thought, how can you, how can you think like that? How can you think like that about a, you know, about a person that you share the life with? How can no you remorse. Th- no, 
No, no. Uh, we didn't see any remorse in the in the, in the trial. We didn't see. Uh, well, we had. Uh, well, we had the family court trial where um, you know he had the um, he had the opportunity to to cross examine us, and we went through the uh, the murder trial. Uh, where you know when you're when you're giving evidence in a, in a uh, you know in the Supreme Court, the the defendant sits a couple of meters away from you. So um, my dad would have been sitting, you know, maybe a meter more from where we're sitting at the moment, and uh, you know to to sit there and to you know go into detail about how this person was was abusive to you and your sisters and and, and your mom and the sort of person that he was. Just to sit there and and share that with the uh, with the jury, and for that person to you know just just stare at you for for hours while you're giving evidence, it's uh, yeah there was no remorse in that. So he was just stone faced throughout the trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess you know he, he pleaded not guilty, so uh, he wanted to uh, you know that that's what he was sticking to, and that's why he didn't show any remorse because he was saying, well, if I'm not guilty, I have nothing to be remorseful of. I I don't need to say sorry because I'm not guilty. Were you shocked that that was how he responded after it happened? No, him? not really. No, I, uh, I kind of expected that. Knowing my dad, I expected it, unfortunately. And what was it like an, an egoic thing or just his beliefs were so firm and so twisted in many ways that he genuinely convinced himself of that? I think he genuinely convinced himself. That, you know, uh, he, he, was, uh, he was adamant that he was a victim. He was a victim because he, again, in, in those letters, he... He says that um, you know he 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 suffered uh, you know mental abuse, that he he suffered um, uh, you know at, at, at the hands of uh, you know my mum. Just oh, totally delusional, and and I guess you know we we were all witnesses. You know my sisters uh, and I we we lived in a house, so we saw what sort of uh, what sort of abuse took place. We 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 knew uh, who the perpetrator was and and who the uh, you know who the victim was. So uh, I think he just had to. Uh, uh, you know, genuinely believe it, so that he could sell it to, to his legal team, and um, and he could uh, you know put on a, a charade like that. Did your mum ever share why she married him? Yeah, that there were stories that um, uh, that we heard about uh, you know their their early life, and that was um, uh, you know my dad was uh, you know my dad was a funny man, a funny man. My dad was a uh, was a charming person. My dad was uh, you know he was he was smart. He was intelligent, and um, uh, you know my mom used to say that he used to he used to joke around all the time. You know, uh, in their um, you know when they I guess you know when they were sort of dating and getting to know one another. My dad was a uh, yeah was a was a joker. You know there was uh, there was not a not a moment when they weren't joking about things and, and laughing, and you know, and I, and I can, and I could see that. I could see that when you know when we used to go out to picnics, and you know, my dad would you know share a joke, or he would make fun of something, and and you know, I could see that he was a he was a funny man. Was it sort of a surprise when he did that though? Do you think he had some sort of condition? I don't think he had a uh, a condition, but I think that he was he grew up in a in an environment where um, you know what what he saw he he adopted. Uh, as uh, as as a normal way of life, and I guess you know he mimicked that, and he never once questioned that what he was doing was was uh, well. He never questioned whether if it was right or wrong, and um, you know I and, and I I get that because you know I was well when I was thirteen I was giving this this, this lecture about you know where women belong in, in in the family home and and in society, 
uh, vaguely, uh, you know, define the hierarchy for me. And so uh, I started to, uh, you know, put that in play uh, when I was about 18 years old. I, you know, I got into my first serious relationship, you know, the, the relationship that, um, you know, I, I, I brought her home. I introduced her to, uh, to, to my sisters, to my mum, never to my dad, because my dad had, uh, had defined this rule that, you know, if you were to get into a relationship, make sure, um, you know, you keep it outside of the family home. Never, never bring your, uh, your partner in, inside. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's the end of it. So I never questioned it. I never challenged it because I knew what my dad was like. And so when I was 18, I uh, started dating this girl and um, she was a lovely girl. Uh, and, and we broke up about 15 months or so after, uh, uh, after we started dating, we broke up and she, um, uh, you know, she, she essentially told me that, uh, you know, that I was an asshole and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, I had, you know, she gotten to know the other side of me that she never knew existed. And so it was certain words and certain things that, uh, that she had said that made me think, think about myself. Think I'm becoming my dad. Did you think that? That's exactly what I thought. There were the words. I think I'm very slowly becoming my father. Uh, and, and when you recognized that, how did that make you feel? Make me feel like shit. I thought, man, I, I don't want to end up like him. I saw how much, how much abuse we copped. I saw the way he treated my mom. I, thought, I, I don't want to end up like that. And so there... Um, it, w- it was really at, at that point, and I guess you know when you when you have your you know when you have your first relationship, you have your first heartbreak. Uh, you know, ev- everyone deals with things differently, but for me, I really took it to heart, and I thought, oh, what what did I do to uh, you know to uh, you know to, to get dumped like this, and to be you know told that I'm that I'm an asshole, and that uh, you know I've uh, you know I'm a completely different. But then person. you could say, well, actually, this and this and this and this, and. Uh, until I started to to reflect, I started to to look at myself and look look at who I am. I thought, oh wow, yes, well, my dad does this. Yes, my dad used to do this. Oh yeah, I remember my dad doing this. So you start looking at all these things. You know, I was I was manipulative. I was emotionally abusive. I was controlling. You know, every time I uh, and I remember every time uh, you know that that particular girl when she wanted to uh, you know go out. Uh, you know, she would you know text me or, or, or call me and say, oh, you know, I'm I'm going out with my friends. And so, and, and it was because I, you know, I sort of molded her that way. I wanted her to, uh, you know, check things with me. And mm. I, so you're like, where are you going? Who are you with? All of those questions. Yep. Yep. All of the, And that's where it all starts. And that's you, where it all starts. When you had that breakup, did you talk to your dad about it? I didn't. No, no. I didn't talk to my dad about any relationship advice purely because he, uh, and I did think about it because I thought, well, I kind of need to speak to, uh, to an adult. I, you know, I needed a, a different father figure, so I started. Uh, I started seeking that. I, you know, I had uh, I had some older mates that, that that I that I went to. I had some uh, uh, some some other father figures, uh, work colleagues. I really started to, uh, I guess, you know, search for a new father figure, not necessarily to you know to, to discuss things with, but I needed to uh, to make sure that I you know pull away from from my dad who I've been following. You need to model yourself on so- on the right thing. on something else, yeah. And that's when you know my mum came into in, into effect, and that's when I started to you know I started talking uh, talking to her about some of my relationships and uh, you know some of the things that you know I'd come across and I just didn't know the answers or I you know I hadn't come across it, so I wanted uh, to uh, uh, you know check it with someone who may have had similar ex- experiences to, to myself. And because my dad told me that you know you. You're not to. You're not allowed to bring um, any any girls home, and that uh, you know the, the family home is for the family only. And so I thought, well, if I'm dating a girl, it's not like I'm, I'm marrying her there and then. 
so uh, I didn't feel comfortable to to bring her home and introduce her to my dad. And so, um, yeah, I, I couldn't go to him for, uh, and I didn't feel comfortable to to go to him because you know, you imagine if I went to him and say, "Hey, Dad, you know, I've been doing these sort of things with, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've I've been abusive, I've well, been manipulated that's why with this I girl." Asked because I, what would he have said? He would have said, "Well, it's her problem." That's he? right. Who knows what sort of advice I would have been given? Yeah, she's yeah. she's not the right one, or something. That's right. That'd be your response. I can only imagine. Yeah, that would be the sort of response that I would have got. Uh, I would have gotten. Did your mum talk to you about your father's abuse as well while it was happening? <sighs> Did she say like, "Help me"? Did she admit to how bad it was? What was her sort of response to it? Uh, I, I guess you know that the reason why I know what my dad was like in in the early stages of my uh, my parents' relationship was because. We did. My older sister and I, you know, would question her from time to time and say, "Well, you know, Dad wasn't always like this, surely. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't end up with such a person. You know, what was he like in the in, you know in the early days? Th- th- there was some stuff that we had, um, you know, that we hadn't witnessed that she shared with us. Uh, you know, she would she would say that you know your 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 father had I don't know uh, had, had had told me that you know this is this is the amount of money that I that I have. You know, this is the this is my spending money for the week or for the month." So th- those were those sort of things that you know we we didn't know, because you know that that happened in the in, in the bedroom or behind closed doors or somewhere where uh, you know we just didn't see or, or hear it. Uh, you know, your father told me that you know we're not we're no longer allowed to affiliate with this family or with this person. Uh, so you know, they were the sort of things that uh, that we would hear about that we just didn't know. In terms of the the physical abuse and I guess you know even the verbal abuse, the yelling and screaming and the arguments, we witnessed most of it. And so um, she, did she say, you know, we have to find a way to get out of this? She didn't. It was actually, it, it was us. It was, um, and I guess at that time when we had that conversation, we were all on the same page because when we sat down after we were threatened, when we sat down and, and said, all right, we need to, we need to make sure that, you know, if, if any of us, any of us are staying home, that there needs to be another person that needs to stay home as well. We need to have a minimum two person policy as such that that's what was happening in our family home. We started to sort of realize that, you know, it wasn't sustainable. You can do this two person thing, but how long can you keep it up for? You might be able to do it for you know a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. Sooner or later, you know, we all have our own lives. You know, maybe one day my sister might be at uni, I might be at work and so my mum ends up being alone at home. So we, you know, we sort of realized that it's not going to be sustainable. And the only option was to was to get out. And we didn't want to leave it to chance either. You don't want to take the risk. Well, was he serious about what he said earlier or not? Did you think once you left, did you think that you would be all right, that you would? Yeah. Yeah. We, we thought once once we leave the family home, we'll be, we'll be fine. And that's, Again, you know, I thought up to that point, I thought my life was hard. You know, I'm always. It was. Uh, it was hard it, before. It, it, it was, but. Compared but, to the norm. Like. Sure. But, you know, once we sort of took the, once we took the step and, and we fled the family home, then we started to see other challenges. Like when, we, when we left the family home, we, um, we, uh, uh, we realized that, you know, my mom doesn't have any family here. My dad's got a big family, but all of my dad's family support him. And so we thought, well, we didn't have a place to go to, so we became homeless. Uh, my older sister and I, we were in our final year of university. We had part-time jobs that you know gave us a bit of extra cash, but uh, my mum, she didn't. Well, she spoke very little English, and she was unemployed. 
So, uh, which is a big means to controlling someone as well. It is. It is when you control whole, the finances. You'd be nothing without me. Correct. Yep. You rely on me. You're you're dependent on me. So, uh, so and and that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, you know many women end up going back to their uh, uh, to the perpetrators. It's because they're they're financially dependent. So we face poverty. Oh, that was another thing. And uh, you know the biggest challenge we faced was isolation. Because I remember the first night you know, we had to sleep in the car. I had my mobile phone down and. And I remember looking at it thinking, you know what? I can't think of a single person that I can talk to right now. I can't think of a single person. I can't even pick up my phone and go through names and, and you know, think of a single person that I can um, uh, you know, ask for help. Because when you've been betrayed by your own blood and flesh, I don't think, I don't think you can depend or trust anyone else around you, regardless of how, not, how long you've known them. You know, I've got a handful of uh, uh, good friends that I rely on, that I know that, uh, you know, at a drop of a hat, they'll be there for me. And they have been ever since we lost our mum. But there and then, I could not bring myself to calling these people because I thought, well, what are they going to do? You know, mum and dad just threatened us. And this, you know, this is a situation we're in now because of him. So what are these people going to do? Yeah. So your worldview and your concept of trust, of course, totally Shattered. affected by yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Has that changed since then? Yes. Like, Yes, yeah. it has. Did it and take a lot of work, though? It did. It did because you, uh, you know, you. Uh, I guess with with my older sister and I, we, you know, we became parents overnight. You know, we were legal guardians of uh, of my younger sister. She was twelve years old at the at the time that uh, my mum passed away, and my dad went to jail. So we essentially became the uh, the, the the guardians, and uh, we um, we we really. Oh, but both of us we really, really, um, you know, depended on on ourselves to um, sort of pull through, you know, put on a mask so that we don't seem upset, or we don't look sad in front of my younger sister, and you know, we need to stay strong, and you know, we can do that our- ourselves. We don't need anyone else, and um, so yeah, you know, you sort of you you do that, but I think that's a it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, you know, I, I can do this myself. You know, I, I'm, I'm, and we're gonna. No, well, you don't I'm, have a choice. You don't. No, and the thing is, you know, you're, you know, when my mom passed away, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken, and I, you know, I, I, I didn't want to experience the same thing again. So I thought, well, I've, you know, I've been betrayed by, uh, you know, by my own family. So I don't, I don't want to rely on anyone else, and I don't want to, you know, trust anyone else. And so you do, you know, you sort of go through, uh, you go through these, um, uh, these experiences, and and you know, it, it changes you, um, uh, and you, uh, you know, you 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 develop some some coping mechanisms, and you sort of you sort of do this. So you know, on some days I was I was great, and other days I wasn't. On some days I was trusting, and other days I wasn't. And so, yeah, you know, we've been through a bit of a journey. But now that I think about it, and now that I look back, um, yeah, it took a little bit of work to uh, to to undo that. But it's all part of the journey. How did it uh, impact becoming the the man that you wanted to be? I uh, learned that um, you know I can't do everything myself. And that you know, I should, uh, you know, but, but prior to to all of this, prior to to us leaving the family home, I, uh, you know, I, I, I relied heavily on on a on a close network of uh, of people around me. You know, whether if it's work colleagues, whether if it's uh, uh, you know university friends or, or whoever it might be, I, I, re- I relied on them, and I had a very good uh, you know very close relationship with them. When we fled the family home, it sort of you know I, I felt detached, and I felt that I wasn't I wasn't part of. Uh, the previous world that I was uh, that I was a part of, and then when my mum passed away again, you know, as I was sort of you know rebuilding that that trust, and I was you know rebuilding this this vase that had been shattered, 
then you know the vase got picked up and it got shattered again. So uh, you know then I started rebuilding it, and so uh, you know I think I, I sort of got myself to a point where you know I thought no, what I was doing before all of this happened, what well, was fine. I was on the right path, and I uh, you know I, I trusted my friends and I had a good uh, uh, you know um, a good group of people around me. So I just had to uh, get rid of these gut instincts that I had developed that, you know, uh, you can't trust people and that, you know, you just need to rely on yourself. I needed to, you know, get get rid of that because I knew that I w- that was just a, uh, you know, a bit of a mechanism that I had uh, that I had developed. And I, I went through probably three years of counseling after my mom passed away because I needed to, uh, you know, talk to someone about, you know, well, uh, sure, there was the grief, but also, uh, uh, you know, that the trust and and my uh, you know group of friends that were around us to to sort of support us. I needed to uh, I needed to know that I could trust again, and you know it took a little bit of work, but but we got there. So uh, it was a journey. It was a journey. <laughs> and out of that, you and your sisters started the Zara Foundation. In yes, ho- in honor of your mother. Just tell us about that as well. The the reason why the foundation came about was uh, my um, my older sister. She she had a bit. She had an idea, and she said, uh, you know, this is what I what I want to do, and so. Uh, uh, then I joined the conversation, and we started uh, speaking to the domestic violence sector. And we uh, we spoke to a to, to a lady. Her name is Maria. So she was the chief executive officer of a uh, of a small not for profit uh, group that um, that helped us. And so they they were like family to us. And so we went to them. We said, uh, you know, this is what we want to do. And so they you know they jumped on board, and they they uh, they really you know helped us drive this uh, this initiative and. Uh, uh, things got to a point where we needed to find out, well, what are we going to do? We don't want to just set up a foundation for the sake of setting it up. Let's try and address a gap. And so uh, when we talked to the domestic violence sector, they said that, um, you know, they, they help a lot of women through crisis. You know, women just like my mum who flee abusive homes, uh, you know, they become homeless, they face poverty, they become isolated. Uh, they go through uh, uh, these domestic violence services. They help them for about three or six months, maybe twelve months. Everyone's different, and um, and then after that crisis point, there's nothing. There's a gap. So what do you do there? And so uh, we decided to focus on that and 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 actually uh, you know delve into it and and we uh, decided to really focus on financial uh, literacy and economic empowerment, because when we fled our family home. Um, you know, I was in my final year of uni. My older sister was in her final year of university. Uh, have you been to university? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? I what? did journalism. <laughs> so uh, as, a, as a uni student, you're always broke, right? Oh, yeah. 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 That's, still, that's a normal thing. <laughs> still broke now. <laughs> still broke now. <laughs> well, it takes a few years to recover from that. So we, uh, you know, we were no different. We had part-time jobs. We had a little bit of cash. Uh, but, you know, money comes and goes. Uh, my younger sister was 11 years old at the time. She was in primary school. My my mum uh, uh, spoke very little English, and she uh, did not uh, have a job. So money became a, uh, uh, you know, a huge factor for us. I, I, I remember we, we, were, we were trying to budget. We were trying to figure out whether if, uh, you know, we had enough money for, you know, to, to sort of get us through to the end of the week. And that depends on, you know, what we're spending money on. You know, are we getting takeaway food? Uh, we need to make sure we have enough uh, uh, money for petrol. And, uh, you know, we need to make sure we have uh, you know, a bit of a rainy fund. So, you know, um, all of those things. But that's the thing is that, you know, I put it this way. If, if, if my mom was there by herself or if my mom was there with my younger sister or even, you know, with a younger child, how would that sort of person 
be able to uh, uh, you know take that next step or or you know get help or or uh, you know put themselves on a on a path where uh, you know there, there is some sort of a future and and you know the, you, you can you can see the light at the end of a tunnel. So empowering women to provide for themselves. That's right. Yeah. And I guess you know you these women have had all sorts of control taken away from them. So uh, you know when you have uh, when you have women who um, you know don't really know how to operate an ATM, don't really know uh, how to read a uh, a bank statement, uh, don't really understand how uh, you know how they can manage their, their debt. Uh, you know they have no um, no idea of you know saving or or anything monetary related. Yeah, yeah, life skills. Then how do you expect them to uh, make it through? But also, uh, uh, I guess you know create some sort of a future for themselves and for their families. And so uh, we decided to focus on uh, on you know uh, this uh, financial literacy and and I guess you know give back the control that's been taken away uh, from, from these women. And what has the foundation been able to do? So we've uh, we've been running a, a program called uh, Pathways to Empowerment. It's a uh, it's, it's an eight week program and it runs in uh, in school terms uh, because we know that a lot of women that come through our uh, our programs uh, they do have uh, school aged children, and so. Uh, uh, when they when they drop off their kids uh, at school, they can come to the program. They can do the course, uh, and the hours are flexible so that uh, they can leave in time to go and pick up their kids and then and then go back home. So we run a uh, uh, it's, it's a it's a short uh, eight week program that um, teaches them anything and everything, whether if it's around savings, it's around debt management. A lot of women that, that come to us, they they have debts. I'll give you an example: a lady that, uh, that that came to us with a you know a twenty thousand dollar loan. For a car, but the car wasn't in her name. The loan was, but the car wasn't. And so, uh, uh, you know, by the time you go through family court and you know work out, uh, you know, go through property settlement and work out exactly, you know, who owns what asset and who owes what to the other party. By the time you do that, that might be a few years down the track. Well, what's this person going to do with that twenty thousand dollar loan and uh, no job and no way to you know meet those repayments? Paying for lawyers as well. Paying for lawyers and and uh, and as I said, you know, when you're trying to get a restraining order, that's one uh, that's one system you're trying to navigate. And when you're trying to get uh, you know property settlements finalised through the family court, that's another court system. It's it, it's very confusing, overwhelming, and uh, uh, you know, e- even with us, you know, we we found it, uh, you know, my oldest sister and I, we found it very difficult and confusing to to navigate. Um, so when you have uh, women that, that that come through that you know they're overwhelmed by all by all this information. We we try and uh, you know break it down in in, in chunks and uh, try and take them through that journey that uh, you know things th- things will be okay and and they can come to this program you know more than once um, you know we've had women that have come through the first time around but because of all the all the anxiety and everything that they've gone through they haven't really been able to absorb all this information they come through again so they might do a term one they might give themselves a bit of a, a bit of a break and they come through again in you know term three or term four. And the second time around, and every every single one of them has said this, the second time around, I was able to sit down, concentrate and focus and absorb the information rather than worry about my child or worry about what family court's going to say or worry about this restraining order or anything else. Um, so that's one initiative. But the other, the other initiative, uh, um, it's, um, uh, it, it, came, it came to us a little bit later on down the track, was that a lot of the women were coming through this um, empowerment program and uh, they wanted to go on, you know, pursue further studies, or they wanted to go and get a job, but they had financial barriers. So we had uh, we, we've had multiple participants that have come through, and uh, they wanted to go and study something at TAFE. We had this lady who wanted to uh, uh, go and study to to become a, a chef, 
But uh, to become a chef, you need uh, you know a, a few sets of uniforms. You need you know shoes and you need um, um, uh, textbooks and other bits and pieces, utensils and all those things. And uh, you have to pay for that stuff up front. So uh, she came to us. She explained the story, and that's that's how it all sort of came about. Is that you know we're seeing a lot of women who want to uh, pursue further study, but it's just a financial barrier. So we created a, a program and we called it Opportunity Knox. And we, we provide women with, uh, with small grants that want to go on, uh, uh, you know, further educate themselves or, uh, or even in some instances, women have come to us and have said, hey, I've got a job interview lined up, but I actually don't have any, any clothes for, uh, you know, to wear for, for, the, for the interview. Or even some of them have, have come through and said, you know, I actually do have a, you know, casual part-time job uh, and I need some, uh, uh, you know, I need some clothes for it. And so we, we provide them with either, uh, you know, either a grant or, um, uh, or gift, ca- gift cards so that they can go and uh, get themselves the uh, appropriate clothing. Fantastic. Uh, so one in three women experiences some kind of abuse from their partner or ex-partner. Correct. Why are so many men in this country abusive? <sighs> That's a good question. My observation is that, uh, you know, to a degree, to a degree we've, um, we've normalized this. And, and I'll give you an example um, uh, I can probably give you a couple of examples. There's a, you know, there was there was a joke that I heard a, f- a few years ago, and I don't remember the wording exactly. But uh, you know, when when you ask someone, you know, when when they're going home after work, you know, what are you going to do? And they say, oh, I'm I'm going home to to kiss the dog and and beat the wife. It's 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 something along those lines. I've I've heard it a f- um, I've heard it a few times, and uh, you know, it's it's. It's that sort of behavior that uh, you know normalizes uh, the, the abuse. Even though you know it's a joke, and people people always say this to me. They say, "Well, it, it's a joke. It's not serious." But uh, when you when you have a when you okay and normalize a joke about beating your wife, or when you have a piece of clothing, bond singlet. What's the bond singlet called? What do we wife beater? It's a wife beater. Why do we call it a wife beater? I don't know, but they should That's, they should definitely change that. When when we have uh, when we have that sort of thing in in our in our everyday language, well, you know, to a degree we're uh, we're saying it's okay. You know, well, I wear a wife beater singlet, and and you know, some people proudly come out and say that it's a wife beater singlet. What are what are men getting out of abusing their partners? Do you think control masculinity? And I think that that's what it comes down to. Is that you know a lot of uh, uh, you know. A, some men may have, you know, they may have uh, uh, become unemployed. They're no longer the breadwinner. So, uh, in order to show that they're still the, the 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 you know the masculine man that they are, and and they're still in charge of their, uh, charge of the house, uh, they need to uh, uh, you know control or uh, or, or abuse their uh, their families. Mm-hmm. That, that ironically, be- it's the weakest thing you can do. It is, it is. But from from their perspective, it's not. From their perspective, they uh, you know. Physically, they uh, they overpower uh, the women, so that makes them the uh, that makes them the uh, uh, you know the head of the household. So self esteem, having such low self esteem that it's a way of regaining it. It is, it is, and I guess you know one way that uh, you know I always try and encourage people is that you know if you if you know if if I could give my younger self some some advice. I would uh, I would say you know if I could go and talk to my 18 year old self before I, I broke up with that girl not that there are any regrets or anything but if I could give you know my my uh, younger self some advice is that uh, you know uh, 
everything that you had been taught as a as a young kid, well, not everything was was right. Uh, you know, the role models that you had in your life, they weren't exactly the best role models. And some of the things that you were taught as a as a young kid, you know, I was I was um, I, I was I was taught not to not to cry because it makes me less of a man. Uh, and, I, and I remember I was in primary school. Uh, and, and I remember this very clearly. I was probably in the second or third grade, uh, and at, at that time we were in Iran. And I remember coming home because uh, 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 I had a fight with a couple of kids, and uh, you know they, uh, they they beat me up. So I so I went home and I and I was crying. And uh, and my dad asked me, he said, "Why are you crying?" And, uh, and I said, oh, "I got into a fight with so and so." And so he pulled me aside, and pulled out his belt, and uh, he decided to whack me a few times. And he goes, uh, he goes, you're a man, men don't cry. If, if someone beats you up, then you go back there and you beat them back up. It's the last time I'll see you do this. Now remember, well, you know, when you're, you know, when you're six or seven years old and you- You go, oh, okay, right. You accept it. I don't it. want to get hit with a belt. No, that's right. I, you know, I've, I've, I've just been hit and, I, and I've come home and this is the, this is, this is the way that it's been addressed. So, um, you know, as, as a kid, you just don't question it. You take it on board, you absorb it. And it, uh, you know, those things come through and resurface when you're, you know, when you're becoming a teenager or when you're in your 20s and 30s. And, and if you don't tackle it and if you don't talk to someone about it and if you don't really, if you don't address it, you're, uh, uh, you know, there's a less of a chance that you can address it later on down the track. And on that, there's thousands and thousands of children witnessing domestic violence on a daily basis and also experiencing it themselves in terms of being abused themselves. What does that do to generations of young people correct well you just shared the the statistics with us you know one in three so you imagine if if one in three and every and in every single situation if there is a child involved then yeah what does that tell you about the next generation you know that's why you've got so many people that are uh, you know the, the, the younger generation you've got so many of them that are coming out with uh, you know with, with with anxiety and so many other uh, you know mental health issues it's it's because of what they're what they've witnessed what they're exposed to uh, at, at home and uh uh, you know how they're going about dealing with it, because chances are they're they're probably ta- uh, taught to to grow up, to man up, uh, and to uh, you know, or you know, men don't cry, don't show tears, and sign of weakness, and and uh, all those struggles. You know, you're sort of told to uh, to to park it aside and and deal with it and man up. What can we as men do to prevent abuse? Oh, if 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 um, oh, I would say the first thing we need to do is uh, you know change our culture. You know, if someone. Uh, if someone needs to, uh, if someone needs to talk, or if uh, if someone is showing signs of, uh, you know, stress, then encourage them to open up. Encourage them to to uh, you know seek assistance. Because the first thing we do is, oh, uh, you know, do you need a shoulder to cry on? Do you need to go and see a shrink? You know, that that's the sort of uh, that would have definitely been something that you know that, that I grew up with. Um, you know, I think about high school and the amount of times that uh, you know boys would turn to one another and say, oh, do you need a shoulder to cry on? Do you need some tissues, love? You know th- th- those sort of sayings, and that's uh, you know going back to uh, you know the jokes. Uh, you know that that's which goes of, back to saying men are this way, women are this way, and if you're right. outside of that, then you're wrong. That's right. Then you don't fit, which which means you need to change yourself in order to to fit into into you know this this society and and into this social structure. And uh, this is this is the norm. Whereas uh, you know that's what we, that's what we're trying to change, and that's what we're trying to break. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. Thank Omar. you. Thanks for having me. You know, it's um, such a tragic story that, um, you know, stands out. And obviously it was one that was very publicized here. Um, but also not an uncommon one, you know. And we also know that 
one woman a week is killed by their former or current partner here in Australia as well. Mm-hmm. And so being able to talk to someone who can explain the reality of what actually going through that is like and you know put a, a face to it and talk about the pain that comes with it and just how many people it affects it makes it sink in a lot more because that's the other thing with statistics is they kind of just like you know water off a duck's back and we hear so many bad numbers and things all the time but what does it take to actually make people want to change their behaviors correct and do you think if we can find a way to get more men to deal with their own shit that we'll see that less violence towards their women I, I would say so definitely and that's why i think that it's it's important for us men to uh you know when we talk about domestic violence i think that domestic violence is largely a man's issue um because you know if, if we we men are um majority of the perpetrators that's that's what we are um and if we can if we can change that then i then i think the the statistics will definitely improve and hopefully the flow-on effects, you know, like the um, uh, you know the, the stress to, to the kids and, and 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 everything else that that sort of creates, all the ripple effects, will uh, yeah we'll be able to see less and less of that, and and hopefully down the track we can uh, you know we can uh, not have these sort of conversations. And loving and respecting ourselves and our friends will allow us to do the same for the women in our lives. And, that's, and I think that's that's one of the things that we need to we need to do is that you know we need to. Uh, as as men, I know that they, you know, we're, uh, um, you know, we've always been told to sort of man up and and be rough. But uh, you know, we need to, we do need to be more gentle with with ourselves, but also with, uh, you know, with each other, with our mates, uh, and and uh, you know, the the, the jokes that uh, you know that that we have, whether if it's about women or whether if it's about you know the so called sensitive men, that needs to stop because we need to change that culture. And the sooner we change that culture, the sooner we can. Uh, uh, you know, work on these uh, uh, on on these statistics, improving them, but uh, but also um, um, you know our own uh, well-being. Thank you. I'm sure you're going to be a great dad. Oh, thank you. If you got something out of this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show, so we can keep bringing you the content that matters. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and get involved, get onto the Youngblood Podcast community Facebook group and follow Youngblood Podcast on Instagram. And if you're keen to get in touch with me, email youngbloodpodcast, all one word, at hotmail.com. This podcast was produced by the talented Rory Noak at Podbooth. You can check them out at podbooth.com.au. This is Youngblood. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.